2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, thanks, Alex. How are you? Yes, I'm very well. I obviously woke up particularly early so that I could gird my loins for the arrival of the Booker Prize long list, which happened on the morning on which we're speaking and recording this podcast.
3: It did indeed. And so you got up early so that you could, if there were any books left that you hadn't read, you could read them. Yes, and then have an informed opinion about every single book on the list. That's what I think you mean. Precisely. I've been up since about 3am, in other words. Quite right too. Quite right too. Now, so I count on you here, Alex, because, as usual, I'm going to play the idiot who has read hardly anything, especially in terms of fiction, alas, at the moment. And I'm assuming you've read all of them, or lots of them.
2: I have not read all of them, but I've read a fair few. I have to say, this is going to sound very parochial, but the ones that I've really read are the Irish books, and that just, I think, by happenstance. But also, there's lots of Irish books. Third the of same. the long list. So we have Brilliant. Sebastian Barry, Elaine Feeney, Paul Murray. And I happen to have read all of those books. We were talking about Paul Murray's book, The Bee Sting, on the podcast with Nicholas Clee a little bit earlier in the year. And it's a book I really, really enjoyed a huge book, a family saga. I love Old God's Time by Sebastian Barry. And I also immensely enjoyed Elaine Feeney's How to Build a Boat. But you know what? I have read books that aren't Irish also on here. I also really enjoyed Tan Twang En's The House of doors which is based on an episode in the life of Somerset Maugham and is set in the federated Malay states in Penang in sort of early 20th century just really really good book I thought there was a few on there that I really sort of heard much about and you know not just
3: because of my great ignorance I think but because they were a bit unexpected were they there's one by Martin McInnes which I wish I had heard about well I'm gonna I want to read it called in ascension yeah it seems to be a sort of science fictiony they go into space they go into the ocean it's a
2: family thing have you heard about that i haven't but it sounds brilliant it's a book i don't know anything about but we'll have read by the time we meet again Mm. is that too much of a sort of bold should we in fact should we divide up what we haven't read and reporting. Okay, back she on it. said feebly. <laughs> I would definitely like to bag that one. Can I have it? Yeah, why don't we yes, I because well we always have you talking about things that are speculative fiction. Speculative You really
3: like, yes. don't you? I do. I like lots of other things as well, can I say. But yeah, I do like that one. And actually that sort of fiction is often quite underrepresented in these sorts of lists unless it's margaret atwood but which case they don't call it speculative
2: fiction i mean that's saying the least isn't it i would really like to read study for obedience by sarah bernstein Okay. because I really, really admired her previous novel. But all sorts of other things on the list. Jonathan Thiscoffery's book, If I Survive You, I thought was brilliant. It's kind of linked stories. Really, really interesting. Ayobami Adebayo's A Spell of Good Things. That's. I'm wondering if with Sebastian Barry and Paul Murray and I guess Tantuan Eng, they're the most well-known names on a mm. list that doesn't have you know with a couple of notable exceptions household names on it
3: no it it doesn't that's what Mm. i was ineptly trying to get at which is refreshing because then you have to go okay who's that boy is
2: it and also a real a real win for independent presses here prophet song by paul lynch published by one world pearl by sean hughes published by the indigo press
3: yeah Canongate gate i've got two in there
2: yeah really very, very interesting. We are going to do a full report once we, between us, have read the entire list.
3: Uh, hold your breath, listeners. <laughs> or maybe don't hold your breath, in fact, listeners. <laughs> we'll do our best.
2: Well, Lucy, to be fair, you have an actual day job, you know, editing the paper. So I think that will quite rightly, I'm prepared to shoulder more of the burden of that. The pleasure of that. Anyway, yes. as we were sort of pointing out, it's summer. And we have the second of our roundups and this week we've dipped back into the archive and found two wonderful celebrations of what we might call extreme enthusiasts. First, Richard Smith, author of The Jay, The Beach and The Limpet Shell, joined us in January to talk about the naturalist Ronald Blythe, who had recently died at the age of 100. And the next month, we talked to Lucasta Miller about her custodianship of a very special collection of commonplace books that had belonged to her late friend, the scholar William St. Clair.
1: It's a field that, like most fields of nonfiction in particular, it's shot through with all these subgenres and major and minor categories. And yeah, well, when the nature writing sort of boom started, which is now, what, 20 years ago, I suppose, it quickly made this whole genre of country writing feel slightly obsolete. And I... I've always slightly considered country writing as something you find in secondhand bookshops, these slightly obscure, fusty mm. volumes, um, you know, from the backwaters of the countryside. Very local
2: kind of thing. Yeah.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, and can seem very provincial. And people aren't, the writers, as a rule, aren't working themselves up into euphorias and high-minded um lectures on the power of nature. They're just describing the countryside largely. And so when the new nature writing, so-called emerged, that it made it all seem a little provincial and and slow which is the last thing it is when it's done well and I think when you when you read Blythe I mean I came quite late to Blythe he was someone who was always referenced Richard Mabee and other nature writers have constantly referenced him as this great writer I came quite late to him and I just absolutely wasn't expecting a writer of his flair I suppose his prose style
3: it's very sharp isn't it
1: yeah he's and he's not sharp is a good word and he's also not afraid to be extravagant in a measured way but there's real prose uh, flair there in a way that um, you just don't expect from country writing of this kind. We shouldn't obviously stereotype or or have expectations of a genre like that but unfortunately we do and of that genre of as you say country writing he was in many ways the last man standing who was sort of known and very well respected and that made him even more special.
2: To quote your words back to you again what you say is we read Blythe Blythe. You're reading it for the writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, again, it places him in a minority among writers of this kind. But it's also interesting because there's a contrast, as maybe points out in, in his introduction to this book, there's very little expressly said of Blythe's inner life, or even of his personal life beyond the day-to-day sort of goings-on of, of church and Community. A quote that was cut from my review for reasons of pretentiousness, Flaubert said that the, the writer should be in his work as God is in creation, mm. which I think is very opposite for Blythe, and not mm-hmm. only because of his religious beliefs, in that he can't help being in there. I mean, you read him and he doesn't tell you how he's feeling, particularly, certainly not in any sort of confessional way that we've come to expect from modern nonfiction.
2: Richard, we do have the podcast specifically so that contributors can reinstate their cut, their cut <laughs> That's lines. That's good enough. Absolutely. And we do, I didn't think that was pretentious at all. I'm on your side. Back to the editing.
3: <laughs> the old TLS staff being undercut here, but never mind. Do, no,
1: <laughs> As you always should in, in any good writing, the writer is there, is incredibly present in the prose, regardless of how, whether they want to be or not, really. I think that maybe says, you know, Blythe was private. He was reluctant to talk about himself. But unfortunately, he <laughs> I'm certain that in the, the writing he gives away more than he intended to, as all great writers do.
3: I was going to mention that he's, of course, as you say, he is there, but he's not grabbing you by the lapels and saying, This is how I feel about this. He just says, I'm looking at this. This wonderful thing he says, I think when he's talking about walking around at night, and he and he mentions a few things and says, It's all so perfectly interesting that one might never go to bed.
1: Yeah. Which is a lovely, yeah, that's a wonderful a lovely
3: thing to say. And it yeah. actually does give you a sense of what he was like, because he, he could also share that enthusiasm. And he's he basically telling you, this is I just why should I go to bed? This is so fascinating. But um sorry, there was another thing that I was going to say to go back to the thing between nature writing and country writing, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting sort of line to draw, because we've had people on the podcast before who who don't even like the idea of calling it nature writing because it's the, that's the us and them kind of idea. Uh, it's very difficult to know what to call it in a way, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You can work yourself in knots a little bit, and I think you've got to remember these are essentially publishers' genres, and that's fine. You know, in day-to-day usage, you go into a bookshop, you know, you want to know where to look. <laughs> the books are in a certain order for a reason. So I think people can be a little bit precious about it, speaking as a nature writer myself. <laughs> OK. Oh, no, I'm not a countryside writer. I'm a suburbs writer, if anything.
3: There's a lot made of the fact that he grew up nearby, isn't there? Mm. And he stayed within a relatively small orbit, isn't there? But the trick, yeah. I guess, to it is to not make his observation sound parochial. I mean, parochial in the pejorative sense, because actually he was a
0: mm.
3: he was very involved in his parish. He didn't do that, did he? He managed to, to make, again, it's about that attention making the particular sort of universal, I guess. Does that, is that what he was doing?
1: I think so. But again, there's another paradox within Blythe, and that's that for all that he was, in as much as one can be, a, a native of where he was from, and he was of the, his family were from the background of Essex, Suffolk area. But it would be a mistake to think of him as some sort of hived off, cloistered uh, country character. I mean, he was a literary figure above mm. all. And I think that's mm. how you have to read him. And he wrote beautifully about an essay he wrote called The Dangerous Idyll, in which he writes about John Clare, particularly a really important writer for Blythe, but also about a lot of other writers and artists and the relationship they had between the region, the countryside districts in which they worked, and their work and their artistic and creative instincts and Jean-Claire had, had terrible trouble as a poet finding the courage to express himself finding the opportunities to express himself within a very restrictive countryside farming community and Blythe writes about that wonderfully because he he did you know he writes about the land but he left the land you know in a practical sense he never worked it as he as he quite you know freely set Um, he lived a, a literary life he moved in bohemian artistic circles and yet he got off the land as as land, as soil, as, as muck, uh, as soon as he was able. Um, and so that's an interesting little contrast in his work, I think. He looks at it as an outsider. You could never say he's an outsider where he lived because it was his heart and soul. But at the same time, he has that distance from, from farming communities.
2: He wasn't a participant in that sense.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. he was an observer. It's,
2: very, it's one of those things. I mean, I'm talking as a sort of complete... Outsider to his mm. work, but there are people again, literary people who you think there's a certain kind of person who is living in the countryside apparently quite remotely and then mm. is suddenly an intimate of Patricia Highsmith, yeah, and Benjamin Britton. And look, I live in the countryside quite remotely, and Benjamin Britton equivalent has not knocked on my program. What's happening here? How did all these connections come? Come into being,
1: yeah, I, I I wish I could tell you, and yeah, the same well I live a very um I live in the suburbs, as I said, but and yeah, the the local um literary society is yet to is yet to summon me. but um <laughs> what's curious is that when you find sometimes you you talk about these communities uh, of, of artists, of so writers and so on, and and there tends to be a few hangers-on, you know. People who tend to get a profile above their merit because because they hang about with with the famous, but that doesn't seem to be the case with Blythe, Blythe and his contemporaries. I mean, Britain, Highsmith, Blythe, I mean, those are pretty formidable names to reckon with. And, and I mean, Blythe is just an incredibly gifted writer, and there's no reason why incredibly gifted writers shouldn't sort of spring from <laughs> farming communities, of course, but um, it is a remarkable coming together of, as people, it really is.
3: Mm. It seemed to me that also he wasn't romantic about any of it. He didn't. He didn't sort of go on about how he was friends with you know um, writers and artists and things, did he? But and also he didn't. With what you're saying about you know he kind of got away from the the muck and the soil. Mm. He didn't romanticise it. He didn't go oh, how wonderful it is to work on the land. He knew it was really hard yeah. work. Yeah. And you know that you were freezing half the time and you weren't paid enough and the hours were atrocious. He wasn't romantic in that sense at all, was he?
1: No, no, neither about the countryside nor about literature. And what really comes through in his writing for me is a kind of equanimity, I think. I can only imagine, speaking as a as an atheist, I can only imagine it, it ties to his profound religious Christian beliefs.
2: There's such an interesting part of your review, which sort of takes on that idea of where he allowed Christianity and indeed a sort of mysticism to come in because he was kind of clear that in a sense he had to keep it at bay, this yeah. you know, euphoric Euphoria. vision. Yeah. Yeah. You had to keep that at bay. But as you say, things creep into to the, the best writer's work.
1: Yeah, though they're maybe not intended to. It's more mm. to do with mm. a fundamental underpinning vision of, of the world and the universe and how it works rather than, you know, a feeling that comes to him standing in a field, you know, or, or, or on a hilltop. Uh, which is what was the kind of epiphany we've become used to with more modern nature writing. I think it's just there, it's imminent in the countryside of Wormingford and and Essex, Suffolk and the other places he mentions. And it's also tied in with his his treatment of time is very interesting. He's a very measured writer. He's very um, easeful, most of the time, I find. And there's there's always this sense of timelessness in Blythe. And I think he was very conscious of that, the way that he... The way that the past and present are interleaved in his writing, his recollections and his observations, and this, I again, partly a, a religious thing, I think, a sense of the eternal, but also a sense, a countryside thing, in that um, the turning of the seasons and the cyclical nature of it. And he has this passage where he talks about round and round we all go, which is the closest he gets, well, to a vision, really. Just this, this sense that we, yeah, that we all proceed, the living and the dead, and the past and the present all. Um, yeah, all moving together in this profound sort of dance, and yeah, that, that's that's the closest Blythe gets to euphoria, but it's again very measured and very mm. beautifully and humanly expressed.
3: Yes, and that whether you are religious or not, I mean, I think you know, as you say, sort of you can you can strike a chord with with everyone. I would have thought, which is Absolutely. actually really difficult to do without sounding just kind of banal or like a you know, like a sort of greetings card or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the thing. What I, what I get in Blythe is, and this is what I fi- what I find in all the writers I love, is that he's sincere and he's honest. And that doesn't mean that he's prosaic or you know he's blunt, because he's certainly not. But I feel that what comes across is incredibly honest and incredibly human. And I think that's the most important thing in this kind of writing.
2: Mm. There is a, a tiny bit, and you know, one has always got to sort of face these things squarely. But I did. There was a note of caution, I thought, in your review. <laughs> you do use the word at one point, complacency, for yeah. example. There is something, there are moments when you're not always with him. Is that fair to say?
1: Um, I think there are moments when you're not allowed in. I think mm-hmm. that's, um, that does strike me, and particularly that makes him stand out. Yeah, there are moments when that, that equanimity feels misplaced. <laughs> For me, I mean, there's a there's quite a heartrending bit when he talks about foot and mouth when the terrible foot and mouth outbreak happened, and the, the the sadness is there, the melancholy is there, but it's it's again tied in with a with a with a sense of timelessness and a sense of you know all manner of things shall be well.
2: Do you mean that it's not it's not it's not political in that in the broadest sense? That's what I
1: mean. Yeah, no, I'd certainly say that's true. Mm. It, it's. Again, it's it's insular, but in the best way, it's it's um, it's calm and it's possessed. And sometimes it maybe just feels a little too self-possessed. And if you have the feeling that, well, perhaps all manner of things will not be well, <laughs> as I do, then, yeah, you can sort of come to, to find yourself at odds with Blythe, I think.
3: But actually, that's presumably was, was part of his deep Christianity as well.
1: I would assume so, yeah. yeah. Like I say, it's difficult to speak to that as a as an atheist, but it does seem to be, that's
3: where it comes from.
1: For an atheist, I think any religion is a form of complacency, and so yeah, that's, that's... a
2: different podcast, Richard. But... <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps consolation in you know, perhaps you're sort of consoled from things that, as you say, you're not sure if they are going to be. Yeah, to absolutely. Be all, yeah. all is going to be well in yeah. the end. I wanted to ask you just that you mentioned a handful of other writers: Nicola Chester, Ron Wen, mm, Patrick yeah. Galbraith. I was just interested. To know where you and 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 in your own work felt that this indefinable genre with contested names and certainly mm-hmm, contested yeah. boundaries, where it was sort of at and where it might be going at the moment. Those particular writers, yeah. I'm not familiar with them, but for example, in the work of you know somebody like Jessica J Lee or Melissa Harrison, you know you you see these sort of uh, different concerns with countryside and with with nature writing
1: yeah the well the two writers you mentioned there again come from a again we, there's so many splinter sort of splintering genres here I, the, the three writers I mentioned in my piece I mentioned because i guess following on from what maybe began in the in the sort of later part of the new new nature writing boom, you had people like um uh, John Lewis Stemple, James Rebanks, who are farmers well, farming farming backgrounds. that's moved on to people like uh, Ware, nicola Chester. Patrick Goldbraith, who again are people who know the countryside. So in a way this is reverting back to, to country writing, which is, you know, a little bit was considered a little bit obsolete.
3: To come on the show, Lucasta Miller on the art of the commonplace book. And if you've enjoyed the podcast this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
2: Welcome back you're listening to the tls podcast summer roundup here's lucas de miller speaking to us earlier in the
3: year the collections that people make for their own pleasure always yield fascinating insights not only to their personalities but to the enthusiasms and obsessions of the time In the first half of the 19th century, many women of the middle classes developed the pastime of copying their favourite poetry into books and albums that they annotated and illustrated and sometimes even padlocked. The scholar William St. Clair, whose book on the Acropolis is reviewed in our lead piece this week, collected around 100 such albums and passed them to Lucasta Miller, in whose care they were until recently, when they went to the special collections of University College London. Lucasta joins us now to tell us a little bit more about them. Lucasta, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Well, thank you for having
3: me. So to begin with, can you tell us how these extraordinary artefacts came to be
4: not only in your possession, but in fact, in your sitting room? Well, I mean, William was a sort of, you know, incorrigible collector of books, and he basically didn't have enough room for all of these in his flat. And so I don't know about sort of 10 or 12 years ago, he asked me whether I'd have space for them and whether I'd look after them. And one of the reasons why he asked me is that he knew that I was working on the poet Letitia Landon, who was extremely well known in this sort of strange period of the 1820s and 30s, the period in which most of these albums were made, and many of them contain poems by Letitia Landon. So, you know, for me to have them was, you know, a great pleasure. It was like having sort of a load of visitors (laughs) staying with me, friendly visitors. But it also was, you know, interesting in terms of my own research.
3: It must have been because you're actually seeing fans, as it were, of Letitia Landon copying out her work, possibly commenting on it. You could see how popular it is.
4: That's right. Um, And I was quite surprised by some of the poems that I found in the albums. I mean, there's one by a young lady. I mean, the album owned by a young lady and she copies out. A very, very early poem by Letitia Landon called When Should Lovers Breathe Their Vows, which was published before anybody knew who she was. It was published under these mysterious initials LEL in an ephemeral poetry column in the Literary Gazette. And at this very early stage of Letitia Landon's career, she was constructing herself in a rather sort of racy, erotic and very romantic way. And it's actually quite a surprise to find this highly respectable, apparently young lady copying out this poem. Another poem that I found intriguing was one of the very, very few albums kept by men. Copies out a poem by Letitia Landon called Love's Last Lesson, which is written in this incredibly sort of bitter female voice. It's about a breakup in the voice of a woman who's been dumped by her lover. And I found it quite intriguing, um, given the rage against the man expressed in the poem that a man had chosen to copy this out. Maybe he had been that kind of lover and he was sort of self-reproving
2: or something. That doesn't sound very likely, actually. That's not the way, way that people behave. <laughs>
4: Who knows? And I think that these books they bring up all sorts of mysterious questions and about, you know, why did people choose these poems? What did these poems mean to them? I mean, sometimes you get, you know, clearly the album is being used um, possibly as a sort of forum for flirtation. You know, there's one in which somebody writes, um, makes up a little poem about, Wouldst thou on me bestow thy love? True heartsees to me send. To thee, I swear I'll ever prove thy lover, brother, friend. So you've obviously got this. You know, young man writing this in a young lady's album. So they're kind of covert means of communication. Yes, because they're very public.
2: And yes, possibly they're also a bit covert. They are, as you know, we said, this kind of fascinating snapshot into who was really sort of hot at the time. And it's often very different. As we know, posterity sees things completely. Differently, And as you mentioned, Letitia Landon, this great hit of the moment, but also Byron, I think, comes up a lot.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of Byron and these albums. I mean, I think the earliest is about 1819 and the latest about 1853. And you can see that Byromania sort of goes on and on and on, certainly among these young women. And we've got to think, for example, about the young Bronte sisters um, who were also completely sort of smitten by Byron. You do see quite a sort of complicated attitude sometimes. I mean, it's as if, I mean, one poem by Byron that they're very aware of is Fairly Well, the poem that he wrote supposedly um, after he'd split up from his wife. And, you know, there are lots of replies to this poem as if the readers themselves feel like they are the spurned wife. You said, I think at one point, that one of the um, young women has written
3: Lord Byron in capitals backwards at the top. <laughs> yes. It just reminds me, you know, I hope I'm not alone in this, but it's what, like what you used to write in your... Jotter, you know, when you were in a boring lesson, do you do doodles and exactly. the name of the boy that you fancy at the point?
4: Or oh, girl. well, exactly. And, you know, it's such a pity I haven't got them all here because I would have looked through them again. But I do remember there's one about, you know, a girl at Miss So-and-so's school and, you know, and her relationship with a boy at Mr So-and-so's school. Yes, it really is teenage stuff that we can recognise today. And were they
2: predominantly teenagers, the sort of profile of people who... Used to compile these books, we've sort of got that it's kind of a middle class thing. It's as you said, very, very few men. But age wise, did it tend to be younger women?
4: Yes, definitely. I think they're all started by younger women, and some of them are inscribed as gifts from, say, the girl's mother saying, you know, I hope you will put this book to profit or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> But what's interesting is that people keep them throughout their lives. So the young woman who wrote out the very erotic poem by Letitia Landon about what's the best time for an assignation, later on you can see that she's obviously married and had had a family and the book has and she's carried on I think for some years adding poems but then later on the book has been repurposed as a scrapbook by a child and so you get this sort of very Victorian picture taken from an advert I think for Fitch's firelighters you think about all that <laughs> the of buried passion and it's stuck on top of these passionate poems by L. E. L. that this album keeper was, you know, enthralled by when she was, you know, in her late teens, perhaps, or early 20s. So people really kind of personalised them. They, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of sort of what they look
2: like. They're very sort of homemade in that kind of way, are they?
4: Yes. I mean, the very earliest, I think, I mean, looks like an exercise book. I mean, it really is the size and shape of a school exercise book with cardboard, not completely floppy covers, but these sort of marbled paper cardboard covers the size of a small school exercise book. Later on, when this fashion became more and more popular, you know, sort of book binders and, you know, book producers really sort of capitalised on it and would produce ready made volumes, you know, bound Some of the poshest ones are bound in sort of tooled Morocco, other ones are bound in cloth I mean even by 1828 somewhere a very sort of sneery satirical little poem which sort of talks about the albums like this sweet album hail morocco green or jet the scrawny minstrel scrawl devouring pet well-poured preserver of pellucid trash on thy smooth leaves what tickling frenzies flash or thumbed by blues or filled by lady lamb Caroline Lamb, a rhyme-stuffed bundle of pedantic sham. Gosh, well, there you go. That's the disapproving side. That was like a male satirist's view of these in 1828. So Byron got there
3: and Letitia Landon got there, and they knew about Lady Caroline Lamb, but I think you say, in terms of, and I think is this is why William Sinclair was interested in them, isn't it, because he wrote the book about the reading habits and the reading nation of the 19th century, but the people that we think of, as Alex was saying earlier, of the, you know, the romantics, there's no Shelley or anyone else like
4: that, is there, is that right? No, there's no Shelley, no Keats, and this just sort of shows, I mean, or just you know, confirms how really small their circulation was in those um, decades after their deaths at the beginning of the eighteen twenties. I mean, I'm having worked on Keats. I'm often asked, you know, what would have happened had Keats lived, and it's an interesting question about what happened to the publishing world in terms of poetry. It, in fact, becomes you know hyper commercialized and commodified and. Poets like Letitia Landon are writing in this sort of frenetic capitalist marketplace, which would not have been at all conducive to Keats's genius. And I sort of feel, well, had he lived, had he married Fanny Braun, had he had to support a family, you know, he just, you know, would not have been able to carry on being Keats and do that by writing poetry On the other hand, it's interesting to see how, although Letitia Landon is often sort of mocked as this, as I said, commercialised writer who's popular among these, you know, middle class ladies. We can really feel with these albums that she wasn't necessarily received like that by her readers, that she really did have a sort of authentic meaning, like they could sort of live through their, their fantasies through her. And we can certainly see that, I mean, in addition to in these albums, in the Bronte sisters, who as teenagers, you know, copied out poetry by Letitia Landon and absorbed it without that sort of cynical detachment. And I'm very interested in looking at the complexities of Letitia Landon's voice and the play between, you know, authenticity and artifice. I think you can feel there's a sort of, often slightly naive authenticity to these albums
3: which is actually easy to mock i mean i find that as you're saying that people were sneering at you know that was very popular with kind of middle class ladies i think that's still true that's been true the whole way through hasn't it people are still <laughs> sneery about things that, especially literature that you know middle class or middle-aged ladies like or teenagers that's still the case
4: yeah i mean i think that there's been a i mean certainly In the case of Letitia Landon, when I came to work on her, I, you know, there wasn't really that much about her. I mean, you still can't easily buy a collection of her poetry. And yeah, I think the literary marketplace, as it were, today, you know, does have a sort of complicated attitude towards still towards women writers. I'm very interested
2: in their preservation, these albums. You mentioned that William St. Clair got them from secondhand dealers, but they were clearly things that were meant to be preserved, that people put in their collections and libraries of books, rather than just sort of, I don't know, throw away kind of diaries. They were commonplace books that were meant to have a place on the shelves.
4: Yes, I mean, you know, although there is one poem in one of them, To a Lady with an Almanac. And it says, unlike this book, receive a better fate, be blessed through life and never out of date. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that they are kept by people, but they're probably forgotten on shelves for Mm. possibly a lifetime after the writers have possibly been distracted by their adult lives. I think that, you know, the idea of them being sort of kept in public rooms in sort of, you know, on the sitting room, on the drawing room table, you'll get your friends to add things to them, makes them quite interesting. And they certainly sort of make you think about the romantic idea of the sort of lone genius. And this certainly breaks that down because it's really a sort of often a very collaborative form of constructing a poetic anthology. And the collection that you looked after, the books had pencil
3: annotations and inscriptions and things from William St. Clair himself, didn't they?
4: Oh, yes, some of them just on the flyleaf. You know, he was so punctilious. He'd make a note of sort of where he bought it, when he bought it, possibly what the name of the album keeper was. Occasionally he'd look at the watermark on the paper to double check the date. And so, you know, there was a sort of palimpsistic effect, the way that, you know, these albums were collections of poems and prose put together by these women in the 19th century and their friends. And then William was collecting the albums himself and adding his own sort of commentary as a scholar. This is the sort of basis for a novel by
2: Alan Hollinghurst, I think. <laughs> yeah, that idea. just reads like that kind of the layers and layers of collection and attachment by people through this just sounds so fascinating. I wondered, Lucasta, how you felt when you said goodbye to them and what kind of companionship they have given you in the corner of your sitting
4: room? Well, they had. I felt incredibly fond of them. Mm. I think there was something about the fact that the authors are so anonymous that was somehow particularly poignant and moving about seeing these forgotten women's handwriting. I mean, in a sense, to me, just as moving as, you know, going into a, a library and seeing an unpublished manuscript by a great writer such as Charlotte Bronte. I found there was something, you know, the way that books can have that almost sort of necromantic effect and make you feel that you're, you know, connecting with the dead. Yes, yeah, exactly. And
3: can you tell us a bit about William Sinclair himself? I was struck by, as I say that our lead piece this week by Mark Mazower is a is a review of his um Well, I think the third edition of his book about the Acropolis, in which he does a kind of amazing revision of his earlier work and thought. And he wrote about all sorts of things, isn't he? And Mark Mazzauer called him a magnificent
4: example of an almost extinct breed, the independent scholar. Well, absolutely. I mean, William really believed in the Republic of Letters in this, you know, in one sense, idealistic, in another sense, very sort of practical way. He was so... um, incredibly well informed he was so well read particularly in the 19th century I mean you know I remember having a long conversation with him at a a TLS party about Edward Bulwer-Lytton's novel The Last Days of Pompeii which I was reading because I was you know researching the 1820s and 30s but you know William had just read it (laughs) But I don't want anyone to get the idea that he was this sort of dusty academic because he had an amazingly lively sense of humour. You know, one of the funniest stories he ever told me, which is sort of slightly connected because it's about diaries. He told me about how once he, as a young man, he suddenly realised his teenage diaries that were just so embarrassing. He was just going to have to get rid of them. So he went out into the countryside from Edinburgh and he tossed them into a loch and he thought, there they are, consigned to a watery grave. Unfortunately, they floated and were washed up and were picked up by some people after a walk. Who read them, presumably? Well, in his very (laughs) punctilious way, he put his own address inside. So these volumes were returned to his parents, the very, very last people that he ever wanted to read them. And so, you know, he had that incredible sense of fun and humour and could laugh at himself in a really charming way.
2: That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Richard Smith and Lucasta Miller. And thank
3: you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardee, with help from Alex Lee.
2: We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark. Goodbye.